0: This feature consisted of one raised bench in a very conspicuous part of the circle, covered with red cloth, and floored with a piece of carpet, and Bathsheba immediately found, to her confusion, that she was a single reserved individual in the tent, the rest of the crowded spectators, one and all, standing on their legs on the border of the arena, where they got twice as good a view of the performance for half the money. Hence, as many eyes were turned upon her, and alone in this place of honour, against a scarlet background, as upon the ponies and clowns who were engaged in preliminary exploits in the centre, Turpin not having yet appeared. Once there Bathsheba was forced to make the best of it, and remain. She sat down, spreading her skirts with some dignity over the unoccupied space on each side of her, and giving a new and feminine aspect to the pavilion.' in a few minutes she noticed the fat red nape of coggin's neck among those standing just below her and joseph poorgrass's saintly profile a little further on the interior was shadowy with a peculiar shade the strange luminous semi-opacities of fine autumn afternoons and eves intensified into rembrandt effects the few yellow sunbeams which came through holes and divisions in the canvas and spurted like jets of gold-dust across the dusky blue atmosphere of haze pervading the tent, until they alighted on inner surfaces of cloth opposite, and shone like little lamps suspended there. Troy, on peeping from his dressing-tent through a slit for reconnoiter before entering, saw his unconscious wife on high before him as described, sitting as queen of the tournament. He started back in utter confusion, for although his disguise effectually concealed his personality, he instantly felt that she would be sure to recognize his voice. He had several times during the day thought of the possibility of some Weatherbury person or other appearing and recognizing him, but he had taken the risk carelessly. If they see me, let them, he had said. But here was Bathsheba, in her own person, and the reality of the scene was so much intenser than any of his prefiguring that he felt he had not half enough considered a point she looked so charming and fair that his cool mood about weathery people was changed he had not expected her to exercise this power over him in the twinkling of an eye should he go on and care nothing he could not bring himself to do that beyond a politic wish to remain unknown There suddenly arose in him now a sense of shame at the possibility that his attractive young wife, who already despised him, should despise him more by discovering him in so mean a condition after so long a time. He actually blushed at the thought, and was vexed beyond measure that his sentiments of dislike towards Weatherbury should have led him to dally about the country in this way. But Troy was never more clever than when absolutely at his wit's end. He hastily thrust aside the curtain, dividing his own little dressing-space— from that of the manager and proprietor, who now appeared as the individual called Tom King, as far down as his waist, and as the aforesaid respectable manager, thence to his toes. "'There's a devil to pay,' said Troy. "'How's that?' "'Why, there's a blackguard creditor in the tent I don't want to see, who'll discover me and nab me as sure as Satan if I open my mouth. What's to be done?' "'You must appear now, I think.' "'I can't.' but the play must proceed do you give that turpin has got a bad cold and can't speak his part but that he'll perform it just the same without speaking the proprietor shook his head anyhow play or no play i won't open my mouth said troy firmly very well let me see i'll tell you how we'll manage said the other who perhaps felt it would be extremely awkward to offend his leading man just at this time i won't tell them anything about your keeping silence go on with the piece and say nothing doing what you can by a judicious wink now and then and a few indomitable nods in the heroic places you know they'll never find out that the speeches are omitted this seemed feasible enough for turpin's speeches were not many or long the fascination of the piece lying entirely in the action and accordingly the play began and at the appointed time black bess leapt into the grassy circle amid the plaudits of the spectators at the turnpike scene where bess and turpin were hotly pursued at midnight by the officers and the half-awake gatekeeper in his tasseled nightcap denies that any horseman has passed coggin uttered a broad-chested well done which could be heard all over the fair above the bleating and poor Grass smiled delightedly with a nice sense of dramatic contrast between our hero, who coolly leaps the gate, and halting justice in the form of his enemies, who must needs pull up cumbersomely and wait to be let through. At the death of Tom King he could not refrain from seizing Coggin by the hand, and whispering, with tears in his eyes, "'Of course, he's not really shot, Jan, only seemingly.' and when the last sad scene came on and the body of the gallant and faithful bess had to be carried out on a shutter by twelve volunteers from among the spectators nothing could restrain poor grass from lending a hand exclaiming as he asked jan to join him twill be something to tell of at warren's in future years jan and hand down to her children For many a year in Weatherbury, Joseph told, with the air of a man who had had experiences in his time, that he touched with his own hand the huff of Bess as she lay upon the board upon his shoulder. If, as some thinkers hold, immortality consists in being enshrined in others' memories, then did Black Bess become immortal that day if she never had done so before meanwhile troy had added a few touches to his ordinary make-up for the character the more effectually to disguise himself and though he had felt faint qualms on first entering the metamorphosis effected by judiciously lining his face with a wire rendered him safe from the eyes of bathsheba and her men nevertheless he was relieved when it was got through there was a second performance in the evening and the tent was lighted up troy had taken his part very quietly this time venturing to introduce a few speeches on occasion, and was just concluding it when, while standing at the edge of the circle, contiguous to the first row of spectators, he observed within a yard of him the eye of a man darted keenly into his side features. Troy hastily shifted his position, after having recognised in the scrutineer the knavish bailiff of Pennyways, his wife's sworn enemy, who still hung about the outskirts of Wetherbury. At first Troy resolved to take no notice, and abide by circumstances. That he had been recognised by this man was highly probable, yet there was room for a doubt. Then the great objection he had felt to allowing news of his proximity to precede him to Wetherbury, in the event of his return, based on a feeling that knowledge of his present occupation would discredit him, still further in his wife's eyes, returned in full force. Moreover, should he resolve not to return at all, A tale of his being alive and being in the neighbourhood would be awkward, and he was anxious to acquire a knowledge of his wife's temporal affairs before deciding which to do. In this dilemma Troy at once went out to reconnoitre. It occurred to him that to find Pennyways, and make a friend of him if possible, would be a very wise act. He had put on a thick beard borrowed from the establishment, and in this he wandered about the fairfield. It was now almost dark, and respectable people were getting their carts and gigs ready to go home. The largest refreshment booth in the fair was provided by an innkeeper from the neighbouring town. This was considered an unexceptionable place for obtaining the necessary food and rest. Host Trencher, as he was jauntily called by the local newspaper, being a substantial man of high repute for catering through all the country round. The tent was divided into first- and second-class compartments, and at the end of the first-class division was a yet further enclosure for the most exclusive, fenced off from the body of the tent by a luncheon-bar, behind which the host himself stood bustling about in a white apron and shirt-sleeves, and looking as if he had never lived anywhere but under canvas all his life. In these penetralia were chairs and a table— which, on candles being lighted, made quite a cosy and luxurious show, with an urn, plated tea and coffee-pots, china tea-cups and plum cakes. Troy stood at the entrance to the booth, where a gypsy woman was frying pancakes over a little fire of sticks and selling them at a penny apiece, and looked over the heads of the people within. He could see nothing of Pennyways, but he soon discerned Bathsheba through an opening in the reserved space at the further end, Troy, thereupon retreated, went round the tent into the darkness and listened. He could hear Bathsheba's voice immediately inside the canvas. She was conversing with a man. A warmth overspread his face. Surely she was not so unprincipled as to flirt in a fair. He wondered if, then, she reckoned upon his death as an absolute certainty. To get at the root of the matter, Troy took a penknife from his pocket, and softly made two little cuts crosswise in the cloth which, by folding back the corners, left a hole the size of a wafer. Close to this he placed his face, withdrawing it again in a moment of surprise, for his eye had been within twelve inches of the top of Bathsheba's head. It was too near to be convenient. He made another hole, a little to one side and lower down, in a shaded place beside her chair, from which it was easy and safe to survey her by looking horizontally. Troy took in the scene completely now, She was leaning back, sipping a cup of tea that she held in her hand, and the owner of the male voice was Boldwood, who had apparently just brought the cup to her. Bathsheba, being in a negligent mood, leant so idly against the canvas that it was pressed into the shape of her shoulder, and she was, in fact, as good as in Troy's arms, and he was obliged to keep his breast carefully backward that she might not feel its warmth through the cloth as he gazed in. Troy found unexpected cords of feeling to be stirred again within him, as they had been stirred earlier in the day. She was handsome as ever, and she was his. It was some minutes before he could counteract his sudden wish to go in and claim her. Then he thought how the proud girl who had always looked down upon him, even whilst it was to love him, would hate him on discovering him to be a strolling player. Were he to make himself known, "'That chapter of his life must at all risks be kept for ever from her and from the weathery people, or his name would be a byword throughout the parish. He would be nicknamed Turpin as long as he lived. Assuredly, before he could claim her, these few past months of his existence must be entirely blotted out.' "'Shall I get you another cup of tea before you start, ma'am?' said Farmer Boldwood. "'Thank you,' said Bathsheba, "'but I must be going at once.' It was great neglect in that man to keep me waiting here till so late. I should have gone two hours ago, if it had not been for him. I had no idea of coming in here, but there's nothing so refreshing as a cup of tea, though I should never have got one if you hadn't helped me. Troy scrutinized her cheek as lit by the candles, and watched each varying shade thereon, and the white shell-like sinuosities of her little ear. She took out her purse and was insisting to Boldwood on paying for the tea for herself when at this moment Pennyways entered the tent Troy trembled here was his scheme for respectability endangered at once he was about to leave his hole of a spile attempt to follow Pennyways and find out if the ex-bailiff had recognized him when he was arrested by the conversation and found he was too late. Excuse me, ma'am, said Pennyways. "'I've some private information for your ear alone.' "'I cannot hear it now,' she said coldly. "'That Bathsheba could not endure this man was evident. "'In fact, he was continually coming to her with some tale or other, "'by which he might creep into favour at the expense of persons maligned.' "'I'll write it down,' said Pennyways confidently. "'He stooped over the table, pulled a leaf from a warped pocket-book, "'and wrote upon the paper in a round hand.' your husband is here i've seen him who's the fool now this he folded small and handed towards her bathsheba would not read it she would not even put out her hand to take it pennyways then with a laugh of derision tossed it into her lap and turning away left her from the words and actions of pennyways troy though he had not been able to see what the ex-bailiff wrote had not a moment's doubt that the note referred to him Nothing that he could think of could be done to check the exposure. "'Curse my luck!' he whispered, and added implications which rustled in the gloom like a pestilent wind. Meanwhile Boldwood said, taking up the note from her lap, "'Don't you wish to read it, Mrs. Troy? If not, I'll destroy it.' "'Oh, well,' said Bathsheba, carelessly, "'perhaps it is unjust not to read it, but I can guess what it is about.' He wants me to recommend him, or it is to tell me of some little scandal or other connected with my work-people. He's always doing that." Bathsheba held a note in her right hand. Bold handed towards her a plate of cut bread and butter, when, in order to take a slice, she put the note into her left hand, where she was still holding the purse, and then allowed her hand to drop beside her, close to the canvas. The moment had come for saving his game, and Troy impulsively felt that he would play the card. For yet another time he looked at the fair hand, and saw the pink finger-tips and the blue veins of the wrist encircled by a bracelet of coral chippings which she wore. How familiar it all was to him! Then, with a lightning action in which he was such an adept, he noiselessly slipped his hand under the bottom of the tent-cloth, which was far from being pinned tightly down, lifted it a little way, keeping his eye to the hole— snatched the note from her fingers, dropped the canvas, and ran away in the gloom towards the bank and ditch, smiling at the scream of astonishment which burst from her. Troy then slid down on the outside of the rampart, hastened around in the bottom of the entrenchment to a distance of a hundred yards, ascended again, and crossed boldly in a slow walk towards the front entrance of the tent. His object was now to get the Pennyways, and prevent a repetition of the announcement until such time as he should choose. Troy reached the tent door, and, standing among the groups there gathered, looked anxiously for Pennyways, evidently not wishing to make himself prominent by inquiring for him. One or two men were speaking of the daring attempt that had just been made to rob a young lady by lifting the canvas of the tent beside her. It was supposed that the rogue had imagined a slip of paper which he held in her hand to be a bank-note, for he had seized it, and made off with it, leaving her purse behind. His chagrin and disappointment at discovering its worthlessness would be a good joke, it was said. However, the occurrence seemed to have become known to few, for it had not interrupted a fiddler— who had lately begun playing by the door of the tent, nor the four bowed old men, with grim countenances and walking-sticks in hand, who were dancing Major Malley's Reel to the tune. Behind these stood Pennyways. Troy glided up to him, beckoned, and whispered a few words, and with a mutual glance of concurrence the two men went into the night together. End of chapter 50